Hello, everyone. This is Rick with the Cyber Pro Podcast, where industry leaders share their insights. Today, we have somebody a little different than we normally have on. This person is going to talk to us about all the cool things about being in a cybersecurity venture firm. So we're super excited. Seth, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, tell us who you are and why you're awesome. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Uh, let's see why I am awesome. Let's start with who I am. So uh, Seth Spurgle, managing partner for Merlin Ventures in the US. And I say in the US because we actually have a, a, a team in Israel as well. And I've got a partner over there, Shai, who runs that team. But to give sort of the broader picture of who we are, um, well, to who, who I am. So I came over to Merlin about five years ago to start Merlin Ventures. Prior to that, had spent five years at Incutel, which is a, a venture capital firm that was actually started by the CIA in the late 90s. Uh, before that, had been the VP of engineering at a, uh, a publicly traded uh, e-commerce retailer that, that was actually a toy company. So that was a, a fun couple of years. And then IBM before that. But I came over to Merlin because they had this idea to start a venture fund. And, and so there is a sister company called Merlin Cyber that is, at this point, approaching 27 years old. And that business is very focused on the U.S. federal market. So their model is working with typically later stage companies, think CyberArk, Forescout, CrowdStrike, helping them do their larger, more strategic enterprise government deals. And they had this thought of, could we spin up a venture arm to find the next generation of technologies that would be relevant to that market? And so I came over in late 2018. We started investing, made some investments in the U.S., made a couple in Israel as well. Um, not really strategically, it just sort of worked out that way. And we saw a few things. One, this was you know 2019 at this point. Valuations were just shooting up. And so to invest in later stage companies that we felt like we could bring into the government market was getting really, really expensive. Two, I'm in D.C. Most startups are not in D.C. And so the reach we had was not massive. And we weren't really finding the companies when we wanted to find them. And then three, we were finding most of the companies that we were investing in were not necessarily ready for the government market on day one, right? It, it took us working with them a while to get them there. And we also saw that we were getting pretty good attention in Israel because of this message around helping companies access the government market. So if you think about it, there's actually a number of VCs that uh, talk about helping startups get into government, but most of them are like InQtel, where it's focused on the intelligence community or DOD. And so it's much more difficult for them to work with foreign technologies. Our sister company has historically spent a lot of time in the civilian agencies, right? Think Health and Human Services or Social Security Administration, places where they don't have the same sort of concerns about technology coming from allies, right? They don't necessarily need all the technology built in the US. What they do want are really strong cybersecurity capabilities. So we actually have the ability to talk to these Israeli companies and say, we can we can help you figure out how to get into the government. It's just, we're not going to bring you into the CIA. We're going to bring you into you know, the VA or Social Security. Uh, and so that message was really good, but we were kind of struggling to navigate the market a bit. And you know, if you've invested in Israel or, or spent any time over there, it's, it's a very tight-knit community. And if you're inside of it, it can be very easy to navigate it. But if you're outside of it, it can be very opaque. And so we were just struggling to find the right companies and vet them appropriately. We got connected with my now partner, Shai, uh, who had a background of working in startups, working with a lot of the now unicorns in Israel. They were first starting out. And he had a great network there. And we decided to partner. And in 2021, we opened up our office in Tel Aviv. And where we are today, we have pivoted from 
just sort of that late stage, let's focus on bringing companies into government to moving earlier stage. And as part of that, we also realized that this government story couldn't be the only thing we rested on. We also needed a way to help companies at that earlier stage. And so we built out a network now of, of around 200 or so US security executives, think CISOs, MSSPs, other people that really have an interest in staying on top of early stage security companies. And we work with that network to help understand the market, help understand where to invest. And then as we do invest in companies, help those companies bridge from the Israeli market into the US market. We'll also do some investment in the US, but the majority of our investments are in Israel. And so having that pathway to help them navigate this market is extremely important to us. That is a very long-winded answer to who I am and what we do. That's awesome. No, that's great. So so Seth, talk to me a little bit because I know Merlin Ventures isn't just one company. And and you mentioned earlier that you're focusing on, you know, the government side of the house in, in some situations, but talk me through what what your group is doing, why it's so cool, what you guys yeah. are offering to the market. So like I said, you know, as we pivoted the ventures piece to focus on really early stage companies, think seed stage companies typically it became obvious we needed to develop additional capabilities. So one was, like I said, we built out that network for working with primarily commercial CISOs, although we also have some government execs in there as well. That piece is great for helping these early stage startups get from zero to, you know, a million in ARR, right? Getting getting started with finding design partners, finding early customers, understanding what their pitch should even be. We also, at the same time, have another leg of that stool a program called Constellation that we've built up over the last few years. Because one of the challenges we saw, both with startups and even with late-stage companies, is getting into the federal market, there's a big barrier to entry uh, with something called FedRAMP, which is a regulation that, I mean, it's it's one of the heaviest regulations I've seen out there. Right? Companies regularly spend millions of dollars and multiple years trying to get through this process. But if you have a SaaS product, it's the only way you can sell to the federal government. And so we saw an opportunity to leverage our position in the market and basically build out a managed service for FedRAMP where we can now take companies through much more quickly and leverage all the learning we've done over the last three years so companies aren't coming in starting from zero and they can leverage our, our sponsorship model and, and basically get through the process in a much more predictable way. And so now what we have is kind of a pathway from seed stage all the way through late stage for companies where at the earliest stages, Merlin Ventures can invest, help you get that early commercial traction in the US market when they get to a late enough stage that they want to start tackling federal, we can bring them into Constellation as this FedRAMP accelerator to help them get a way of even selling into the federal market. And then when they start getting enough traction through Constellation that they have enough sales out there that it makes sense to look at larger enterprise sales and just more strategic actions in the federal market, we can hand them off to Merlin Cyber to do those really large enterprise types of deals. So the goal is sort of give them that full lifespan. I love it, and and just because you brought you know you brought up FedRAMP, right? And 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 we play quite a bit with the Department of Defense. They recently made a note that they're going to remove the equivalency uh, the equivalency rule and push more people to FedRAMP, especially through the CMMC guidelines. What are you guys hearing on that front? I mean, in general, right? FedRAMP is so heavy, and, and some of the DoD requirements, like IL four or five, are so heavy. People want to not have to do this over and over with little tweaks each time. So there's a huge desire for that. Even with a FedRAMP, you have kind of two standards today. You have a JAB-sponsored version of FedRAMP and an agency-sponsored version of FedRAMP. And part of the new, uh, you know, requirements that have come out have said, we're getting rid of that that difference there, but they still haven't actually figured out how to do that. 
So I think in general, it's a movement in the right direction. We want to see a standard way of, of bringing people into the federal market. It's just so expensive right now. And the expense isn't even the worst part. The, ex the difficulty is it's just such a convoluted process that figuring out how to get through makes it so like your chance of success is very, very low. And when you look at the number of companies in, in the FedRAMP side of things, if you look in the FedRAMP marketplace where they list all the FedRAMP solutions, there's like 300 something out of the universe of how many thousands of SaaS applications out there. So it just really limits the government's ability to use the best technology out there, use the best cybersecurity tools to defend their networks. Because unless it's FedRAMP, they can't use it, generally speaking. I love it. Thank you for explaining that. Pivoting just a little bit for you, Seth. Yeah. You guys hear a lot of what's kind of an evolution in the cybersecurity landscape. What, what are you hearing and what are you taking notice of? So, uh, like I said, we've got this big CISO network and, and, you know, what we keep hearing over and over right now is frankly concern about some of the stuff going on with liability. So, for instance, the, the SolarWinds breach, right? And the SEC action against SolarWinds in general, but more specifically around the CISO has a lot of CISOs right now very freaked out about being a security executive at a public company. And so, you know, when I talk to folks in that space, where the goal was always historically, hey, I wanna grow my career and eventually be the CISO of a large public company. I am hearing a lot more movement the other direction now of I would really like to find a large private company right now where I'm not necessarily exposed to SEC regulations in the same way. Um, and I think that is gonna be a challenge this coming year, right? Where we've always had a shortage of security professionals. And now it's, this is sort of a self-inflicted wound where it's not necessarily a shortage because of skills in the market, but it's a shortage because we're we're putting such an onus on CISOs that they're left in a position where they don't feel like they can safely take on these roles. And so a lot of the folks we're talking to are stepping, you know, looking for different types of positions or even stepping away from the CISO type of role. Um, so that I mean that's certainly a, an area of concern for us right now. Let's let's dig in on that a little bit, right? What's your opinion on being a CISO in today's market space, right? I mean, a small startup might be one thing, but you know, we see the solar winds, this SEC action against, you know, that specific CISO. We see a lot of people offering fractional or B CISOs. Yeah. You know, talk to me about the world that you see and 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 your opinion on on the CISO role. So I do think there's been some really good movement in the last few years, right? It it used to be CISO was kind of, you know, you're sub subservient to the CIO or CTO, you have no board access, right? It's, it's, you're a cost center, you're just making me spend money and, and adding friction to my business. I do think in the last few years, it's gone from being the role of, you know, that they just sort of want as a scapegoat, right? We're going to blame you when the breach happens to in a lot of companies. I mean, that still exists, but in a lot of companies, I do think it's a much more respected position. The board is listening. The board is saying, how do we actually protect ourselves and our company? Um, and so like that side of things, I think is, is a positive movement and it will be interesting to see how companies as a whole respond to some of these new rules around liability, right? And are they going to give the CISOs the top cover they actually need to succeed? I think, you know, the, the challenge here is I'm seeing more CISOs now demand, for instance, the you know, directors and officers insurance in order to take on the CISO role at a public company. But even DNO insurance, I mean, it gets you a lawyer and it covers the fines, but it's not going to keep you out of jail. Okay. So there needs to be a level of cooperation with the board now where the board is willing to listen and, and say, okay, I understand why you're saying these are our, our issues and we need to address them. 
And here's how we as a company are going to work with you to address them. And companies that aren't doing that are just, they're going to really struggle to, to get somebody of quality into that role. Seth, this has been super insightful. And I know we have a bunch of bonus content we're going to be airing around this podcast. So people need to check out that. But for the fun and final question, what's your favorite piece of retro technology that just makes you smile? So I still have the first computer I ever got, which was probably 1982 or three, my, my TI-99 4A. And, and unfortunately, I don't have it set up in, in this office. My, my last office, I had it set up there with the, the old you know CRT TV and, and a box of cartridges so I could play games on it still. But that, that makes me happy. It brings me back to, you know, being, being five or six years old and, and playing games with my parents on it and back to the 80s. I love it. I love it. Seth, thank you so much for being on the CyberPro Podcast. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for tuning into the CyberPro Podcast. Make sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss out on new podcasts and all of our cool bonus content.